for the long, long time since September, all, all these many months, we've been with the Gospels, with the um, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, studying them together, reading them together, uh, because they're the portraits, they're the stories that tell us directly about Jesus, the Lord that we follow, the one who we are, are orienting our whole life around. And we're, we're doing so because sometimes you kind of, you forget who Jesus is. Because there's so many versions of Jesus out there. So many people uh, say things about Jesus and, and say that he's one thing or another. He's a great teacher, a guru. Uh, Christians worship Jesus as Lord. And so sometimes it's good just to spend a whole year as a church reminding ourselves who he is, what he's about, what he stands for, and why we follow him. So we've been doing that. And of course, at Christmas time, since it's about Jesus' birth, we've been focusing in on, on the Christmas stories that... Uh, the Christmas story. So, but basically what I've been doing, over the, if you've been paying attention, is I've been building the case that every Christmas, every year we have a chance to journey once more with the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, to journey with them to Bethlehem and to, to join in and hunker around the cradle once more. And as we do so, it's not just a, a cultural tradition that we follow, but as we do so, something mysterious happens as we cradle, as we join around this cradle, something happens to us. And in particular, we start learning and, and remembering about joy and contentment and comfort. And these are the great themes that huddle in around this small family. And as we do so, they begin to touch very deep places of our own lives, of our own personalities, of our own stories, of our own family struggles, of our own, um, I don't know, mental challenges, of our, of our own, even our own hurts and the deep places inside of us. These stories and this practice begins to touch us very deeply. And instead of rushing around, and I talked about this last week, instead of rushing around to buy things and to bake things and to, um, to be full of anxiety, Advent is actually far more about centering ourselves once again with prayer in the presence of God to bring those deep places to us which oftentimes are hidden from our own experience because we're so busy and so full of so much stuff that we take this time once again to, to stay still and, to, and for things to awaken in us that perhaps haven't been awoken in a long time. And so these are the many things that we've been talking about. Uh, we talked about Elizabeth and Zechariah a couple weeks ago. My friend Justin was in here. Hey, and by the way, if you missed any of these podcasts any, or any of these sermons, they're all podcasted online. So check out the Grassroots Church page if, you, if you've missed some to, to catch up. So uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah a couple weeks ago that God uses unlikely people, this holy family, God uses unlikely people to prepare his way into the world. And that for Mary, what we learned from her is that joy, joy makes its home in the deepest of sadness. And I talked about that last week, but just to say a few more words on that this morning, if you missed it, that sometimes we, we don't think, we, we have a hard time connecting our own sadness and our own experience with joy because we think, well, is, it, is this happiness? Am I just supposed to be like jumping for joy, leaping for joy? John the Baptist leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb when Jesus came near. But what is, what is joy? How does it work? And I, I like this phrase, joy makes its home in deep sadness. It's like joy is, joy is this sense that everything in the world is actually okay after all. 
It's this deep knowing that even though things seem to spin out of control, that everything is all right after all, and joy well springs up out of that sense. And what joy does, joy doesn't come in and sort of like ask you to pack up your deep sadness and put it in the back closet so it can have a fun party. Joy comes in and begins to look around our home and its messes and its sadness, and it begins to make a home there, to spruce it up a little bit, to, do, to decorate it up a little bit, and it sits there in our sadness, and it doesn't, doesn't ask us to be anything other than what we are and who we are and what our stories are. And so for Mary, of course, Mary, we think of her as the Holy Mother, Jesus' mom. Uh, in the Catholic tradition, there's a whole, whole uh, kind of sector of devotion to Mary, as we talked about last week. Um, but for Mary, Mary was this young girl who had a life ahead of her. She had her dreams. She had the things that she was about to embark in. And God says, I want to do something very special to you. I'm going to give you in your womb the king of the world. And yet this is actually going to ruin your life. I mean, by society's standards, the shame that you're going to have to take on, the questions that people will ask. I mean, there are actually articles. If you go out and read the scholarly articles today on Jesus' birth, there are actually some that sort of try to figure out maybe, maybe Mary was was raped by a Roman soldier, and that's how Jesus was conceived. Like, there's all these, even today, even the today, Mary, you know, has these questions. Can you imagine what she must have gone through as a young woman uh, in, in her day and age? So Mary must have been filled with deep questions, deep sadness, and yet she rejoiced. She was able to have joy in the midst of that. So, um, Joy makes its home in deep sadness. And again, these questions, we're all asking the question, what does it mean to be a God-bearer in this world? What does it mean to be someone who brings the presence of God into the world in a new and fresh way? And it's this holy family who does it. And so uh, these, are the, these are the couple of points about how we do that. Finding joy in the midst of our deep sadness brings God's presence into the world. Recognizing that God uses unlikely people to do that work. And then finally today, we're going to jump into this idea of peace. That we can, we can find peace, deep, deep peace, in some of the ancient hopes. So I'm going to unpack that for us today. We can find peace in the ancient hopes. And so where do we come from? Where's the storyline so far? Uh, we've, last week, we saw Elizabeth and Mary greeting one another, spending a few months together, rejoicing together, singing songs. And what happens after this is that Mary leaves Elizabeth right uh, on the precipice of um, Elizabeth's time to give birth. Uh, looks as if, it doesn't really say exactly, but it, the, the Luke's story looks as if Mary leaves just before John is born. She goes back home. She's just finished with her first trimester. John's about to be born. She leaves. Elizabeth goes into labor, has John. They name John. And then Zechariah, the priest, John's father, sings this amazing song. So we're going we're gonna to dive into this today. Uh, and remember, we have to remember what, what, what Luke has told us in the rest of chapter 1. By the way, this all comes from Luke, Luke chapter 1. It's 80, 80 verses long, okay? It's like the, one of the longest chapters, like... It's a good, a good 80 verses, but it's long. So we're still in Luke 1 here. Um, so what happens? Remember at the beginning of Luke 1, Zechariah the priest is near the Holy of Holies. Gabriel, the angel, comes and meets Zechariah and says to him that 
your, your prayer has been heard, your prayer for a son, your prayer for the longing redemption of Israel has been heard. Um, I, God, God is favoring you, uh, and, and you're going to have a child, and he's going to be great. And Zechariah goes, my wife's old, I'm too old, prove it. <laughs> That's basically what he says to the angel. Can you imagine saying that to an angel? Okay, an angel just showed up to me, knows my deepest secrets, and I'm like, okay, well, prove it, angel. And so the angel goes, well, in order to prove it, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be mute. I'm taking away your voice. Something happens mysteriously. Zechariah is unable to speak. So that's Zechariah. And then the angel comes to, uh, well, he goes his way, and the angel then goes to Nazareth to announce to Mary that something special is going to happen. And Mary says, I believe you. I mean, how? How is this going to be possible? But I believe you. And you get these two contrasting experiences of faith. This great priest, this great religious leader, and this probably unschooled, uh, unschooled uh, uh, peasant girl. And she has great faith, and Zechariah doesn't. And so he gets his mouth shut. And so what happens at this point, so uh, Mary goes away. Elizabeth starts to give birth and has a boy, and it's John. And what happens, the story tells us, the story is so precious, the way that Luke tells it. Here's what happens. Mary, Elizabeth goes into labor, has a son, and they all rejoice. And eight days later, as the custom, as they're about to do the, the Jewish circumcision uh, custom, Zechariah is still mute. Elizabeth is, is there, and... All of the family are saying, what should we name him? It's the eighth day, let's name him. And they say, let's name him after his father, Zechariah. You know, and Zechariah's like, mm-hmm. and, and Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. Because that's what Gabriel told me his name was going to be. Gabriel said, you'll name him John. And the, the name John means God shows favor. God shows favor on you. God shows favor on you. And so here's what happens. Um, Everyone's amazed because they say, well, no one in your family has this name. Why would you choose this name, John? Let's ask Zechariah. So Zechariah gets his iPad out or whatever, gets his stylus and says, his name, he writes, his name is John. And everyone is overcome with fear and amazement at what's happened. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth is opened. And he can speak again. And he begins praising God. And he sings this amazing song, which I'll dive into here in a second. Uh, but I just think about that. Like, of, of all that time, for nine months to be un, unable to speak, to be unable to talk. I mean, certainly, certainly, Elizabeth, I mean, we, we know about Elizabeth. As Elizabeth, Elizabeth spent five months in seclusion. And then came out of seclusion after five months. So there's, what, four-ish months left? Four-plus months left. So Zechariah and Elizabeth probably had been communicating on an iPad or whatever. You know, like, it says it's a tablet. That's my pastor's joke. He wrote on a tablet. Okay, sorry. Um, so they probably had been communicating. The angel Gabriel told me his name was going to be John, so we're going to name him John. So they probably had that figured out beforehand. But at this moment where he finally writes, his name is John, it's this moment of finally Trusting, finally believing that God is who he says he is and God's promise will be as he spoke. It's this moment where, I mean, what must that have been like 
for this moment of this, this great priest, the man of faith, to have a moment of, of a, a lapse in his faith when, Ga- when Gabriel come, and then to be silenced. And this long nine-month experience is, must have been so, I mean, can you imagine the soul-searching, the hardness, the, the aching that would have gone on inside of him, and the, the shame, the guilt, why couldn't I have just believed? And you get back to this, this great, and we've talked about with this with John, I've been, I say this every once in a while, that faith, having faith is not about needing to see a sign. Zechariah was like, okay, I kind of believe you're speaking to me, show me a sign. And the angel's like, that's not what it's, this is about. <laughs> And he goes through this, this nine-month experience. And finally, when he's able to realize he doesn't need a sign to believe. He just needs to kind of embrace God's movement and mysterious working in the world. And when he does, when he finally embraces it, his name is John. Whew, out it all comes. This moment of the final, uh, finally he's, he's believing. Finally he's, he's opening his heart to God in, in a new way. I think it's just beautiful. So he begins to praise, and that, it's amazing. It's the first thing out of his mouth, not like someone get me a pizza. Like, what would you say if you were unable to speak for nine months? It was, you, could, you could tell where his mind had come to, that immediately his mouth was opened, and he began praising God. That was the first thing that he wanted to come out of his mouth. And as he did so, as he praised God, this is the first thing he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's what he had to say. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And to me that this is showing he's having, finally having confidence in everything he had once hoped in. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. See how this works? For he has looked favorably. I love that. This is his son John. He has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is it. This is what he has to say. This is his beautiful song. And you can see at the very beginning of this, he's showing confidence in everything that he had once hoped in. Some, some, some of us, when we go through our faith journeys and our faith crises, we get to the place where we're like, you know what, I, everything I once believed and everything I once knew, I now question. That happens. People get to that space where something happens in their life, something unexpected, something out of the ordinary that they had no idea could be possible would happen to them as a person of faith. And they falter and they stumble and they ask, can I believe anything of what I used to believe? And you can see Zechariah here, something in him is linking into these ancient, old promises. Now we're, we're a group of people, in case you don't know, Grassroots is, is a group of people who are sort of on a, an expedition, or on a journey here. There, there is a deep belief that kind of spreads across, uh, canvases the community widely, this belief that somehow the Christianity and the religion that we've been handed, um, maybe, maybe there's parts of it that aren't so helpful. And so we're asking these questions of what, what does it mean to be a person of faith in this day and age, in this time when Christianity does seem to be kind of dying here? Can we still be a people of deep faith? Can we still believe in the old ancient promises? And I think it's a beautiful journey that we're on. 
I think it's a great journey because there are so many people out in their homes this morning in Thunder Bay or in the surrounding areas. So many people have been hurt or disaffected or burned by church. And they know that too. They know that, that maybe something they've experienced about the faith that they've been giving to them was, them was somehow insufficient. There must be something more. It must be different than what we expected. And this community is trying to figure out how do we stay faithful to God and to Jesus in this day and age in this way. And so I commend us in that. That's where we're going. And yet sometimes as we're on that journey, especially as hard things happen, we can ask the questions, can we believe the old stuff? Can we believe the ancient stuff, the stuff that has been around for 2,000 years? What is it that's the bathwater and what is it that's the baby? How do we go about this without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I think there's a, there's a, there's a, Zechariah has a challenge for us, like for us. How do we go about believing God and believing the ancient stories deeply? And the ancient story about God rescuing his people from Egypt. How do we stay with that and believe that he did that and can do that? How do we stay with the stories of, of exile and believing that God was working in the midst of exile? How do we stay with the story of Jesus? And trust deeply that what God did in birthing Jesus into the world and raising him from the dead after he was killed on a cross is at the centerpiece of our, of our faith. God did that. It's real. How do we do that? Uh, and Zechariah, in, in his ordeal, I think teaches us that at some point it's, it's good to explore. It's good to, to press forward on the fringes of this movement of, of God's continued work in the world, and yet deeply clinging on to and, and having faith in the deep stories of Jesus. So um, I love this. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old. It's this deep confidence that the ancient, ancient wisdom will, will prove true once again. And as we go through our own trials and our own ordeals, we can have this deep confidence that God, the rescuing God, the maddeningly mysterious God, will come through too. He'll be here. He'll show up. And we can have that confidence in him. So Zechariah, that we'd be saved from our enemies. See, it's not easy. Zechariah was filled with enemies and surrounded by people who hated him. This is not, a, not just a... Uh, neutral environment that he's in. He goes on. I love this. This is his vision for what life could be like. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before, all our, before him all our days. Love that. See what he wants? He wants to be able to serve God without fear, boldly, brashly, serve him in the world, in all holiness, in all righteousness. What are those big Christianese words, those big religious words, in all holiness and righteousness? What is he dreaming about? I think it has something to do with this deep peace. The word peace can put these two together. Holiness, the ability to orient our lives in a way that avoids all of the addictions and the temptations 
and the things that would suck us into worshiping other gods. This is a, holiness is a, a cultic religious language to say we're going to serve God and not all this other stuff which clamors after our devotion. I mean, what, what has it been this last week for you as you've gone around shopping or watching or consuming or communicating? Like, what is it that pulls at you so deeply that you know that it wants you to serve it? Um, those are idols. The things I was listening to a good sermon this week. It says, uh, you know, what, what are the things that you're aspiring to do and be? What, 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 what are you building in your life? And when something threatens to undercut what you're building, to tear it down, you get like, you're, you get full of rage. That you know it's an idol then, an idol. Holiness is saying no to all those idols and yes to the living God. And holiness and righteousness. And righteousness is another way to say, we'll just say it this way, everything, everything about the way that you do your life is right. It's, it's, it's as it's supposed to be. And see how peace can come in and peace can characterize serving the living God, saying no to the idols, and having a rightness about you. A rightness. So holiness and righteousness, that's what that's about. And that's what, that's what Zechariah realizes. That's what the promise is of being a follower of God. That your life, um, not, not that it's easy, not that it's going to all get fixed in 0.2 seconds, but that as you stick with it, as you stay with God, as you learn the deep, how to touch those deep places in you with his presence, how to open those, those deep places to his presence, how the holiness and righteousness will increase. That's his vision for the world. I love that. And he's, he goes on to say, now, now he begins to, to look at his son and to just rejoice. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now this gets thick. I'm going to try to pull this apart for us. This gets thick here. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay, here's my little chart. And I put it on this side of the screen because I realized it was behind the Christmas tree for you guys, so doing you a favor there. Um, here, the God-bearing life. That, this is what this is about. Are you a person who brings God's presence into the world, who bears it into the world by the way you live in, in your life? Are you, are you like, are, have you joined the Holy Family in that practice? Are you someone who not only experiences the living God in your life in an ongoing way, but are you someone who just can't help but draw others into that same life? I think probably all of us are here this morning on this day because, because we want to be that to, to some degree. So how does this work? The God-bearing life. This is what this whole song is really about. And, and it finally, it pinnacles. The Greek is so hard here. Uh, this is where my, my Greek, I just, I sentence diagrammed all the Greek for this. Um, it, it, all, it all leads, all these clauses in Greek lead up to this final purpose, guiding people's feet into the way of peace. That's what this is ultimately about. Your life, your neighbor's life, your family's life, other people that you love and work around, guiding their feet into a way of peace. Now, just think, think of all those people that surround you. Think of all the people that you interact with. 
Can, can you think of one person who's like, wow, their life is defined by peace? I think of a few. I can think of a few. But it's very, it's very difficult, isn't it, to have your life defined by the word peace? That even though there may be turmoil or fighting or clamoring, you can, in the midst of it, just breathe deeply and know that all is right. God, God will show up through the midst of this. It's a hard thing, but that's, that's where it's going. The God-bearing life is getting to that place where you can recognize and realize that although the sadness and the confusion and the anger and all of that stuff that characterizes our, our actual everyday living, all of that can come and be pervaded and infused and taken over by a deep sense of well-being and peace. That's where we're going. And not just like here, but eternally guiding feet into the way of peace, serve him eternally without fear in holiness and righteousness. See how the holiness and the righteousness combine and they work together to create this, this context for peace. Now, what does that? How, these are the big questions. How do we get there? How do we do that? How do we make our life and shape our life in a way that makes that happen? And so, not just for us, but for other people. It's, it's enlightening those I'll just skip to the bottom here. See, this is John's mission, to prepare his way, to go before the Lord. And what's, what, what does he do? He enlightens those in darkness and those who are living in the shadow of death. Enlighten is a hard word for us because we think, of, we think about it up here. Like, I'm going to go tell people what, what life is really like. I'm going to go shove down their throat what's real. Like, sometimes that's what we think of this. There's far less of that and far more of this. Right? Far more of being and living in a way that sheds light on them, that, that shows them what life could be like. The first place I remember, the first place I ever worked was called Shaker Village. It was an old restored community uh, of, of, from the 1800s of like this, this strange Quaker sect. And they, they were like the people who first made seed packets, you know, put, putting seeds in packets. Like, anyway, um, so I worked there and the, the, the staff environment was full of so much slander and so much gossip. I was like, I was, I was in seminary at the time and I would work from the two to 10 shift and I'd be there behind the front desk of the hotel and I'd be like do, learning Hebrew and learning my assignments, waiting for the next guest to come in. And around the corner, just this, I mean, just tearing down. I just remember, I, I didn't have any part of that. Like, I'm, that's, that's not who I am. That's, that's not who I want to be. And so I remember I worked there just for a year, a little over a year. But by about month nine, people were like, they knew that they shouldn't slander people around me because it wouldn't go anywhere. And, and I would actually challenge that. I would say, well, tell me about that. Why do you believe that? Like, actually, I know otherwise. And, and I remember this, I think her name was Donna, middle-aged woman, kind of second career, couldn't quite find her way in the world. She came up to me one day and was like, what? I just think it's so amazing that you don't talk bad about people. And then she's like, why? Why, do you, why don't you do that? Tell me why. And I was like, oh, door open. And I was able to tell her about, about God and about the living God and the way he orders his world in peace and not chaos. And I was able to go into that and how, you know, and how uh, that we were so stuck enslaved in the ways of chaos that we needed out and that Jesus Christ came down and rescued us and freed us 
and taught us and uh, not to sin and not to do those things. Freed us into all of that. And how in the midst of our messiness, even though, yeah, we slip into all of it, God has this great mercy over us. She was like blown away that that's what life could be like. Enlightening those in darkness, those who are living in the shadow of death. That's a God-bearing life. Learning to be a light, a warming, enlightening presence in the life of those around you. But it, wasn't just, it's not, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with holding, lighting, lighting a candle and holding it in every corner of darkness you find. It doesn't stop there. Uh, what do you do? It, you give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins, by the tender mercy of God which is rising like the sun. It's so weird. Scholars don't even know what this means. We can't figure out exactly how this Greek works together. But I think of it like this, the way that I sort of have put it together in my understanding of God and who he is. It's like this. It's the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge, the deep awareness that there is a living God in the world who brings us up out of our mire into freedom and new life. And the only way that we could even imagine that is by this tender mercy. I don't know if you've all seen like the new Star Wars movie yet. I was out there. I wasn't dressed up, but I was out there. And the whole movie is, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Um, <laughs> but the whole, the whole movie is about hope. It's about when, when there's just a little shred left, when everything seems dark and impossible, to hold on to hope. In the final scenes, there's this, these couple suns rising. It's like the sun rising. The tender mercy of God is like being up all night long and being fatigued and being broken down and thinking, how can there be light after such darkness? And then finally to see the edges of the sunlight peering up above the horizon. That's what Zechariah is talking about in his song. That's the God we serve. If it's the darkest place you could ever imagine of being in, there will be a dawn. He will come up above the horizon. His tender mercy does this over and over and over again in our lives. If we let it, if we stay open to it, if we don't tank and push the self-destruct button, God's mercy rises. And what does it do when it rises? It proclaims the forgiveness of our sins. Those who are far, those who've been far off, can come home to a father who, who will embrace them. It's, it's the, the ways that you've been trapped and contributing and to, to the darkness and brokenness of this world. Through the death on, on the cross, Jesus has not only shattered the power of sin and death, but covered over a multitude of sins, which is to say, just as you are. No, no effort, no energy, nothing you can possibly do can rescue yourself. God himself has done that work. You don't, you don't have to keep trying to rescue yourself. God has rescued you. And yet once you're in his presence, once you're living in his house, it's learning that holiness and learning the righteousness which creates peace instead of destruction. Um, we'll, we'll go into all this in the, in, the, in the spring when we get to the, the Passion Week. All of this truth, all of this stuff which our culture and our world would like to see as fantasy or something of the past is still so deeply true and is still so the only thing that can orient our lives to the living God. So this is a God-bearing life, not only becoming confident in this, recognizing this, realizing that this is the true story, which has oftentimes been put under the false realities of the world that we live in today, to embrace that, to embrace the ancient truths, 
and realize that the way of true peace is only found in, in, in following the living God. Okay, so this is the God-bearing life. And Zechariah, I mean, he just, he just belts it out. He sings it out. This is what, this is what he knows now, that he's been silenced for, for nine months. And, uh, you know, I think of, of us as we... I mean, why go into all of this at Christmas time? Like, why now? Why talk about this now? Why, why Zechariah, are you talking about this at the birth of your son John, who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah? Because we... We need this message so deeply, I believe, at this very moment in Advent. I mean, think about it. We've, we, each of us have our, our 12, I don't know how many days are left till Christmas. Eight, eight days left, seven days. It's like we have one, you know how fast a week goes by. We, we all have seven more days to stir our hearts into these deep places, into these stories. Because what's going to happen next in the story is so beautiful. We're moving on from Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're going to go join some shepherds next week, a whole evening, following these shepherds into the, the presence of, of Jesus himself. All this anticipation, all this waiting. We need it now because we have eight days left to prepare our hearts, to prepare ourselves to open ourselves in the deepest places to the God who's breaking forth once again in, in, in the, the, the birth of his son. So what, what is it? Where does this touch you today? Where, where does the need for peace, the need to, to come back to the living God, to be forgiven for your sins, to be um, washed over by a deep sense of joy in the hard times that we're living in. I know I need it. My week was not, I wouldn't call it a good week. I did not have a good week. I had a hard week this week. It wasn't fun. Um, but, uh, but yesterday, as I was sitting at the end of it, kind of feeling like in pieces, I was sitting at the end of it, and I was just like, I'm not broken. I haven't been broken by this week. Like, I would have been broken by this week five years ago. I wasn't broken by this week. The things I went through... Uh, I had a deep sense of, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. God's with you. God's with us. And each one of us needs that right now, I believe, in our life. What, what about you? Where does this touch you? I would invite you to think about what your life might look like in the years to come. In the year to come, even. I'll say it that way. What might your life look like in the year to come as a God-bearing person? What if we adopted these ways of rejoicing and peace and deep peace and bore God into the world, into Thunder Bay in the region in a new way. What, what, what would that look like? What would happen if we, if we were people who reoriented our life in this way? I just think, I can't wait to find out. Um, whatever it is for you, whatever's on your mind uh, today as, as you come to this altar, and remember what's this week could be full of prayer and presence and bringing yourself to the to the foot of God, the throne of God, whatever it is God is stirring in you, I would invite you to bring to the table today. What we do here, uh, what Christians do, is we come to the table week in and week out because Jesus told us to. He said, when you go through life, when you want to follow me, and you want to keep on going through the hard, hardness of it all, come to my table every week and take this bread which symbolizes my body and this drink which symbolizes my blood. And the way that I lived out my faith 
to the very end for you, to break you in, to, to break the chains of, of slavery that were on you. Come and take and dip every week and devote yourself to me once again. Devote your life to me once again. Bring your prayers in the final couple songs, final couple Christmas songs that we're going to sing today. Bring your prayers. Bring your heartaches. The ways that you want to yell at God or the ways that you want to speak kind of warm, fuzzy words to him. What is it? Whatever it is for you, I invite you to bring it forward today and to, to come into his presence. Use this time well, these last few minutes, to, to draw close to God and to, um, to experience and, and lean into this pervading peace which the ancient ones, the disciples of Jesus, told us about. So the table is set, and everybody here is welcome.